controls back where they belong. Put those props back. Nothing doing, Skipper. That's an order. Hang on, chum. You can do it. Now fly. Let me pray. Run out of gas, run over San Francisco. Well, let's try it this way for a while. Don't be saying to go for a swim. Welby, check your final position. I'm going to take her down. Wait a few more minutes, Captain. Do as I say. But it looks like... Do as I say. Give him a few more minutes. I've already waited too long. Here we go. No, we don't. Get a hold of yourself, you yellow. You're listening to the podcast, so there I was. It's how all great aviation tales begin. Repeat here, and I'm chatting with Fig in the preamble... We were joined this week by a friend of ours, Nightmare. Nightmare. Great interview. Felt like I had done 50 crunches before the first two minutes were over. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Opened right up with how he got his call sign. He thinks it was kind of boring. I think it was kind of funny because it's so very true. And uh, the good news for him was he didn't get his call sign another way, which, you know, he could have. Right. Could have been Splash. Could have been Swimmer. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You yes, you're, allu- you're alluding to him uh, jumping out of a perfectly good uh, airplane, except for the fact that, uh, what would you say? Oh, it had no hydraulics or, uh, or the engine wasn't running. Yeah, no engine, no fuel flow, no <laughs> hydraulics, therefore no flight controls. Other than that, it was a good airplane. It was perfectly good. Yeah. The beautiful thing about that was he holds the record for the longest free fall in a Harrier before going ahead and pulling the handle. He was reluctant to do so, and I don't blame him. He was out over the Atlantic Ocean. So, you know, yeah. what was the old Bill Cosby joke? How long can you tread water, right? I mean, <laughs> That's right. It, it was going to be a while. So when he told us that story, my, my palms were sweating for a little bit. Absolutely. Because I was there. You know, I was there. Absolutely. But they were able to notify everybody. He was picked up by a couple who were sailing from Florida to Massachusetts on their sailboat. They pulled him out of the drink, and he waited there for a boat to come get him. And then he got over to a helicopter, got a look at his airplane in the marsh, which that was funny in and of itself. He was out over the ocean. He had checks. The airplane turned inland and lands lands in the marsh. Thank God it didn't hit anybody, huh? If I if I recall, he he uh, uh, on purposefully pointed the airplane away so it wouldn't yeah. possibly hit hit anybody. And after he jumped out, it turned. It turned right inland <laughs> <laughs> and stabilized. You know, it was going down like a brick. And he jumps out and it stabilizes and heads right over right over land. And uh, yeah. of course, so. The good news, he got out. He was fine. He literally was in the O Club that evening having a beer. And as he said, they were the biggest thing to hit Lakehurst, New Jersey, since the Hindenburg. (laughs) (laughs) So, and then he was flying three days later, which is unheard of in today's Marine Corps. No, no, that would never happen today. No, no. And I get it. You know, you got to cross all your T's and dot all your I's, which uh, he was good about that, too. He, He was the commanding officer of the training squadron, the RAG. And a student jumped out of the airplane, and at first they thought he was dead. And they, you know, people were like, well, are you going to go tell his wife? Goes, no, no, we're going to get all the facts first. Uh, <laughs> and it turned out student wasn't dead, so it's a good thing he didn't go tell his wife. And, right. uh, but they found out he was alive and okay, and said, are you going to go tell his wife? He's like, no, we're going to get all the facts first. And uh, so that was a good thing he did. You know, make sure you have all your information. Before you run yes. over and tell the wives. Because in all likelihood, as we talked about in this episode, the wives already know about it anyway. 
they know who's who and what's what long before any one oh. of the official channels do. They, yeah, that's a hell of a, a, a security network right there. In the world's it smallest is cockpit. It is indeed. So. Well, what tanker, do you say, Fig? I think we get out of the way. The weather, let episode 49 come. To listen the, uh, to Nightmare. Who, uh, sit back. Dad. Relax. That's Don't sit really on the ejection that. handle. Don't do it. it can only end badly. It's <laughs> no. Nightmare, y'all. Enjoy. Well, there I was, crossing the pond, and you could see that I wasn't exactly fun. So there I was, running out of airspeed altitude and ideas. Which is how all great aviation tales begin. Welcome. This is Fig coming to you from Kansas City. And uh, where are you today, my friend, my co-host, to repeat? I am in New Hampshire. I'm home in New Hampshire for a couple more weeks, then they're going to make me go back to work again. What an outrage. Don't say that four-letter word again. Do not say it again today. Right. It's Saturday. Let's not exactly. Like that. Exactly. Enjoying the weekend with a fine naval aviator, a fine Harrier pilot. Outstanding. Nightmare. And I don't think he got that call sign as an instructor. He had it well before that. So uh, welcome, okay. Nightmare. And how'd you get that call sign? Yeah, how did you be? How did you get nightmares? You know, I have been asked that question for 37 years. Rarely do I answer it. And it's a good call sign to have. Yeah. But it's a real boring way I got it. Oh. So down in Beeville, Texas, I was going through, uh, we were in TA4s. There was graduating class of maybe about 20, 25 of us to get winged the following week. And on Saturday, we were all going to do our our night air nav, uh, solo take off, fly around, don't get lost, land safely, and you're done. So there are two waves. First wave went out. They came back. The sailors turned all the planes around, and uh, we signed for our jets and walked on out. And I pre-flighted one. It had a broken hide line. Pre-flighted the second one. It had something wrong with it. I think it had no obogs. The third one I got in, started up, and the student behind me had seized the brakes, so it didn't go anywhere. Well, three strikes and you're out because the student is so scared and overwhelmed at that point, he's got to go home. So I went home. Everybody else went out and got their flight done. So there's one guy that's going to graduate in a couple of days and he needs one more flight. So Sunday, they opened the airfield up. They brought in ATC, crash fire rescue, the squadron, everybody. And this is uh, August, no, September, September. I go through this, the instructor, uh, the briefs, I go suit up, I'm walking up the flight line and at the far end of the flight line where my bird was, there's a petty officer out there and he screams out, oh no, here comes our worst nightmare. And the ODO, the instructor's up on the fire escape sitting out because it's a, it's a South Texas September yeah. day Absolutely. and nothing turning get, on the ramp. So it's quiet that he hears it's everything. Dead quiet. There's nothing, there's nothing for a hundred, there's nothing unless you can get to Randolph. Right. So I get in, I fire up the plane, go through the checks. I'm taxing, I key the mic. Hey, base, Charlie, two twos, taxing. Roger, Nightmare, have a good flight. And Boom. Nightmare for about 38 years. That's awesome. Nice. Nice. <laughs> I think you were going to take that airplane. As long as it wasn't on fire, I think you were taking that airplane. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's where you got your wings. How'd you get interested in aviation, and what was your commissioning source? My old man was a, uh, a Marine, A4 driver. He started in FJ Furies. And then, uh, did 20 years with CEO of 211 out in the Okuni back in the, uh, early mid seventies. Nice. And so I grew up from day one, I was going to fly single seat light attack. And, uh, 
it just it worked out. I mean, everyone goes to college. I want an education. I want this. I said, okay, number one, I got to become a Marine officer. Got to get a college degree. And it just backed up from there. And uh, to get through college, of course, uh, being lazy and broke, I put in for an ROTC scholarship. I was lucky enough to, to get a uh, four-year scholarship. And uh, went to Villanova on that. Got commission, check. Got through flat school, check. And got the, got the aircraft I wanted. So I guess it was sort of in my blood. Outstanding. Uh, it all worked out. Yeah. Start with a plan in mind. Start with the end in mind, right? Isn't that what Nasty said? Make a plan, brief the plan, fly the plan. There you go. As long as you don't break three jets. Yeah. I'm not broken more than that. <laughs> well, there's that. Yeah. Hey, uh, uh, when did you, so was uh, the AV-8 your first choice out of flight? It was. I had uh, our senior Marine at VT-24, was a old F-4 uh, fighter guy. He transitioned, had recently transitioned to the F-18. And he took me up on all my air-to-airs. So you put in your dream sheet, your first three choices. And my choices were AV-8, A-4, uh, F-18. And he called me in the office, got closed the door, and started reading me the right act. Like, All right. You're going to go fighters. Da, 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 da. I said, no, I'm not. I said, you know, I'm, I'm not fat enough to need two engines. I'm not dumb enough to need two heads. I'm not going fighters. And uh, so I ended up getting Harriers. All right. And what year, uh, what year was that? That when was uh, uh, 1985. I got winged in September of 85 and got to 203 that November. Nice. Nice. Okay. And then from 203, that was the rag. You finished there and was 330, yeah. 331 your first gun squadron? Because I know you were there for yeah, the war. I got to 331 uh, late spring, I believe it was, of 86. Okay. Okay. So you were there for a long time then because you went to the I first I was there Earl, through Desert Earl. Storm. Yeah. After Desert Storm, we got back in April of 91. And then I went to 203 for my first tour there. It was a long, that was a long squadron tour. For it was, I wasn't supposed to go to, uh, I, I was transferring to 203 after we, we did a UDP to Iwakuni, uh, in, for the end of 89. So you were there and for then, the Se Lieutenant Savoy incident. I, I was, I was part of a lot of those incidents. <laughs> and, um, and then I got orders to 203 in the summer, that summer. And I had about four days there. And Saddam invaded Kuwait. Right. And the 331 CO, I guess the word I was there, he was called up to, uh, to the general and said, your squad is deploying. Who do you need for personnel? And the skipper gave him a list and I happened to be on it. So I got recalled back to 331 to, uh, to fill that up. So yeah, you, you, Woody, Lawman, was Manny in that group too? Who's it was Buick, Lawman, Oscar, Scorch. Yeah. Smitty, uh, Buckwheat initially, Mystic the CO, Easy the XO. Boy, it, it, it was. That's a I lot mean, of legends you just named I there. I think it was the A team. Yeah. yeah every is. squadron that was there, 542, 231, real of, they'll only they have the A team. We really had the A team. Yeah. So it was a good crowd. We all, we all got along too. Repeat, you know what I'm picking up on here? And I, uh, Every one of those gun squadrons recalled all their uh, all their gunfighters, and, and that's how we ended up in two twenty three because there was nobody there. We, we were brand and new, yeah, nobody was there. That's when trip deployed. trip got handed yeah, a, a, a big bag of uh, newbies and said, "Here, make them combat ready." 
Um, yeah, you, they, especially the East Coast Harrier guys. They kind of, you guys got, you know, timing's, timing's 90%. Timing of is the everything, you guys right? Got the Royal Ream. Absolutely. Well, we got to watch all you guys on on CNN taking off and coming back from missions. Yeah. Thinking, Those guys are doing everything that we wanted. That looks cool. Yeah. So well, that was a long time though. So, but, but even before you went to 203, so you were there for. I was there for almost five years, right? Maybe five years. Yeah. And that wasn't all that abnormal back then. But, uh, I, I think the 91 time frame that changed and people started doing like three year tours max. Yeah. Um, right. But yeah, we had a, we, we had a good crowd there. And of course, as a squad and we did a UDP right into the desert shield thing. So. Yeah, you always get a little tighter on deployment because you don't have mom and the kids to worry about running home right, to every day. Right. So we had it. We had it. We were pretty tight knit. Hey, nice. uh, let's, oh, I want to back up uh, a second and ask you uh, your flight, your flight training days. Any um, memorable, oh shit stories that oh I can't believe I lived through that or something that you'll never forget because it was funny from flight school. Uh, I know I got one down and it was my very first simulator in a T2. Oh. And how do you do that? Yeah, that final approach fix, that's, that's for the average pilot. I must have gone through that at about 350 knots. <laughs> you know, I didn't know oh, it because I, I, I wasn't very good at it because it's just a simulator. And there's a thing that was on the throttle. It called a, a speed brake button. And if you actually engage it, put the speed brakes out, the damn thing slowed down. Weird. But uh, for the life of me, I could slow that simulator down that day. But uh, it was training That's for awesome. me was pretty routine, I guess. I went through, I guess it was about 18, 19 months from the time I started T-34s to the time I got winged. Yeah. I had very little slack time. My longest delay, I think, was one week, and that was between uh, Milton, Florida, and Beeville, Texas. Well, that's pretty good. Yeah. I did have one thing with, uh, I did have one, not funny looking back, and it probably really wasn't funny that day, but I, uh, I got married to my practice wife while I was in uh, Beeville, and we had set up to go on a honeymoon and everything, and all that's good. And we got married in October, so Columbus Day, I guess, the long weekend, three days. Okay. The Wednesday before I was flying home, I think Thursday, or the day before I was flying home, the instructors call me and say, by the way, Riggs, uh, we're going to have to, you're going to have to cancel your leave. We need you back here Tuesday because we need to fly. You can't let your class get behind. I said, Ooh, okay, got it. So I go home, get married, fly, fly back to San Antonio, drive to Beaver on Monday, you know, welcome to the Marine Corps. Tuesday, I'm not on the schedule. Wednesday, I was assistant ODO. Thursday, I was assistant ODO, and Friday, they said, okay, Sunday, the C-9 is going to be here to fly the base football team up to Meridian to take part in the, uh, the VT football intramurals. So I went to Meridian for a weekend. Uh, practice wife is not pretty pleased since we canceled our honeymoon, so I had to fly, and I did fly for three weeks. Oh, boy. Yeah. And you know, I had no leg to stand on. Did you say VT football team? Uh, yeah, VT 24 had one, 25 had one, and then the Kingsville Squadrons had one, and Meridian had one, and there was a, a annual intramural uh, 
football playoffs. I, I have to ask my favorite flag question. Football? Flag football? Still, I have to ask my favorite question. Right. What could possibly go wrong? You know. <laughs> Twisted knees. Broken arms. <laughs> you know. Yeah, what could go wrong? I mean, she's she's my son's mother, but my practice wife. Oh Yeah. And then there's that. Damn it. <laughs> right? Exactly. So the other thing I wanted to ask you about that, and it just completely slipped. Oh, that's what I know what I wanted. I wanted to break in and tell our non-Naval Aviator listeners who have never gone to Navy flight school, every flight you go out on, you're graded on a whole myriad of things. And it's checklist usage and head work and maneuvers and approaches, that kind of stuff. And you're graded as above average, average, below average, or unset. So that's what a down is, an unset. What, what you get to repeat? The flight. So that's special, that whole grading system. So every flight was a test. And, and speaking about grades, I did just, I just did think of something when you mentioned grading. I, okay. A4s, TA4s, getting ready for the boat. FCLPs, we went to Goliad. They almost didn't let me go to the boat. I was so bad. They actually would write down Woody Allen or John Wayne and the break Woody Allen on the ball. I was, <laughs> I mean, I came in pretty good, but, but then trying to get that damn thing down where you wanted it to, I could. Yeah. So then we went out to North Island and landed on the, uh, we landed on the enterprise oh. and we got delayed there for two weeks. B bill guys were the first ones to go or C9 broke down. So we were stuck having already called for a week. We go back to get the C9 and we're sitting in the uh, terminal there at North Island and people come on and be, Riggs, congratulations. I'm like, congratulations for what? You got the hook, man. You got the golden tail hook. You did what? the best out of all of us. I'm like, you guys are kidding, man. I hope I just passed. There's no, you passed. And it's true. They gave me the golden tail hook and I was awful on the ball. So I pity all those sailors that got winning wow. with me. <laughs> hopefully they all ended up going C2s or E2s. Wow. Stay away from hey, the yeah, boat. That- <laughs> yeah. I and then, I, of course, I fly a plane that didn't beat the hook. Right. right. We stop and land. But you got that plaque. Yeah. I, I got that little paper certificate. <laughs> nice. Somewhere. Got Very the cool. Gold hook, baby. Okay. So, uh, what was the ra- So, uh, you know, my, my experience at the RAG was, um, it, 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 it was uh, so one of the rag instructors said, you know, we, we, uh, the, the reputation of the, of the Harrier rag was, uh, you know, we eat our own. And, um, it was, uh, you know, you had, you had some guys that were really ornery, uh, and, yeah. and some of that were t- t- totally chill. Um, what was your experience going through the rag there? Nightmare. When I went through, there were six guys in my class and there was really one class going through at a time. And the instructors I had, I mean, you're a student, you're a first lieutenant, and these guys are captains that have flown the AV8A. The single seat at 203 when I went through was all AV8Bs, and the two seaters were all TAV8As. So okay. we, we did FAMs in the TAV8A. I think we did 10, 10 flights or maybe 11 flights in a two seater. And then we, uh, they sent us to solo in the B. And all the instructors I dealt with were, I had no problems with them. They, uh, they wanted you to learn. They wanted to teach you, uh, good. And the, the ones with an attitude, I really, we, I really didn't see, uh, during the time I went through, I, and good. we had our Cielo Bambi was great. And, uh, he, he had a, a team of instructors that sort of like, yeah, I hope someday I could have a team like that because they were all pretty good. 
Nice. Well, that's good. Oh, that's good news. So did you change yeah. that attitude when you became commanding officer? Of the, of the <laughs> I tried to get it back to the old way, yeah. like, but you know, times had changed and we got Weed more these guys nice out. and kind of more sensitive. So I couldn't. They wouldn't let me. What an outrage. So yeah. So yeah. I still remember what, what the, the first time I ever gave, I gave two on sets as a, as an instructor in the Harrier. And the first one I gave, I do you remember this? You and I were out on a night bombing mission. Okay. You, you, you okay. Clearly, you don't remember, well, it. and that's okay. You know, there's, there's things in life that you remember, <laughs> things you don't. But yeah, so we're out on a night bombing mission, and uh, I'm leading, and you had a student in a T-bird, and I had uh, just a thirty degree dive in T's. We, we, yes, and it was nighttime. And yeah. anyway, the, the long and short of it is, the student was solo in a single seat dash four, uh, and he passed you in the bombing pattern. <laughs> so Cut we came off. back and, uh, you said, well, you going to give him the down or am I? I'm like, no, I got it. <laughs> you know, I'm the flight lead. So that was my first unset. Downs were always hard to get, but normally it was cut and dry, you know? Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, that's, yeah. That's, I, that's, that's black and white right yeah, there. Right. Yeah. I, I had one kid that was doing a decel to the South Pat and a decel, you, you slow down. And then the guy in the front seat says, I'm going to hover stuff where he brings the nozzles to the vertical position. And then you just sort of slowly bleed off, increasing your, your throttle to increase thrust. So you, you balance the aerodynamic lift launched with thrust you put now. He goes, hover stop. And I said, Roger, hover stop. And then he pulled the damn throttle item. Don't oh. get off. I called the power and say, wave it off. And he waves it off and slowly nulls us out. Turn around. I said, okay, let's try that again. He goes, okay. So he comes around and he did a fine landing that time. So, okay, we're done. We go in, taxi, and we get the debris. And that was when we had the little HUD tanks that you had the, uh, the TAC play, nope. uh, player yeah. thing for the yeah. debris. Yep. We get the debrief and I said, you know, you're going to have to refly this couple practices. And it's like, what did I do wrong? I said, you don't know what you did wrong? No, sir. I said, okay. And I queued up his HUD tank. So it's on the, uh, the first D cell. And he's watching it, listening to it, da, 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 and wave it off. Okay. Wave it off. And I see in his eyes, he has no clue what's going on. I said, let's do that again. Do it again. He goes, he doesn't have a clue. And so I said, okay, close your eyes this time. And he closed his eyes and he goes through and you just hear on the tape, the throttle going, and, and his eyes open real wide. And he goes, I go, I don't. Yes, you get him. You yes. can sign this twice. And you're lucky to be here to fly it twice. And so, and I'm sure I was the same way. Students get so focused oh, sure. on They've got book knowledge at that point. So the procedures are X, Y, Z. That's all I can worry about. Meeting the procedures without realizing what the picture is. Yeah. And sometimes when they go X, Y, B, C, it doesn't work out that way. Yeah. Yeah. Getting that left hand smart was, was half the battle in that airplane. Yeah. It was probably 90%. Oh boy. I was on a refresher in, T in the TAVA and they had my on-wing was in the back seat and he was a great on-wing. Donnie taught me well. And we're landing on five left, runway zero five left at Cherry Point, left to right crosswind. Tower tells you that when you're landing. I'm coming in for rolling vertical landing, about 55 knots, and the wind is blowing from the left to the right. And in the Harry, you always want to keep the nose centered on the wind, keep the, keep the vein centered. And that's what they pump, the vein center, the vein center, you won't die. Okay. So we're coming in and I got the left rudder shaking, kicking my leg. That's probably why my knees are sore today. Just kicking my leg. I got... The plane, I've got to crowd it. Otherwise, we're blowing off the runway. And I land one. Boom. Ugly as can be. 
try that again. We try my, my only, he was calm as could be fearless. Try that again. I do the same exact thing. He's yelling, son of the banks. And he never yelled at me. Son of the damn bank. I'm like the vein is center. Boom. And then he goes, okay, taxi off at Alpha Taxi. So I get up in the taxiway and he goes, Rich, what are you doing? I don't know. I'm sending the van. The plane's broken. And he goes, and I see him look, and then he looks up like that, and then he slumps in the back. I can see that in the mirror. And, like, and he goes, look up, sir. Look up at my vein. And the TABA has the vein in front of the front seat, and it's got one on the canopy both right in front of the back seat. And I'm looking at my vein, and it's dead center. I looked up at his vein, and it's off like this. Oh, shit. <laughs> and I'm like... Okay, well, look in my vein. <laughs> like this. And he goes, okay, we're going to have to correct that. This time, don't look at your vein. <laughs> and I went around and landed okay, I guess. Center of the vein. It is center. Yeah. yeah. Well, there was, so the rudder, uh, so that was the T, that was the T bird, right? The, the, uh, T, was the T bird, yeah. A T AV8A. So, so it had uh, the rudder, uh, the rudder shaker to tell you what rudder you had to press. Oh yeah, I'll be there. And it was working on that okay. plane. For the non-Harrier pilots in the crowd, that we actually just had this little weather vane sitting right out in front of the canopy that told you whether you had a crosswind or a relative crosswind on the airplane because we had a thing called the death equation, and it was yaw times angle of attack times airspeed, and if that equaled one. When you multiplied those things out, you got yeah, uh, inverse yaw departure and yeah. you wound up dying. And one uh, zero, it's always zero. anything is multiplied by zero, zero. So as long as you kept your weather being centered, it, we were multiplying by zero and the death equation couldn't come into effect. So, yeah, that's right. That's Any right. positive result is a negative result. That's right. Yes. <laughs> oh, uh, for some reason it. In my mind, I thought the uh, A model, uh, not only was it harder to fly, but I, I didn't know it had the creature comfort of the little rudder shaker to tell you which rudder you need to push. I didn't, I, I've got very limited experience. Like I said, we did maybe 10 sorties, always with an instructor. And, uh, but I do remember, because it's, of course, British, all of our checklists sort of went from the left side and around. The pre-start checklist, post-start, you always sort of went around the cockpit. Mm-hmm. Right. And all I remember is trying to remember, okay, I got one here, one there, one over there, one over there. It had no semblance of sport, but. Right. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you to the yeah. queen. It's still <laughs> trying to get us. <laughs> so, um, you left there, you went down to 331. You did almost five years before you, you left, you were an instructor for almost four days before you got called back to go to the war. You, you had some fun at 331 to include, uh, you, uh, you gave one back to the taxpayers. Did you not? I did. Well, let's talk about that. You mind chatting about that? <laughs> yeah, let's go through that. June 5th of 87. I was flying to do, uh, Wolf and I were going to do a static display at West Oakland, Massachusetts at an air show. So my parents lived in, uh, South shore, South of Boston and about 25 minute drive from South Wayne. So we're going to fly from Cherry Point to South Weymouth, land, have lunch, and then uh, have lunch, get some fuel, and pop over to Westover and park it for the weekend for the air show. I, I was first to 10. I, I don't know how many. I had like maybe 300, 350 hours. Been in the squad in a year, roughly. Okay. That's, that's pretty good. We get up to 33,000 feet. We're flying the airways about 20 miles or so, 25 miles off the Jersey coast. And Will says, hey, Nightmare, check the weather. For McGuire. I said, okay. So I switched up uh, Air Force Base McGuire 
Metro to get a update on the weather at South Weymouth and Westover. And, uh, so I key the mic, you know, you know, McGuire Metro looking for an update on the weather, South Weymouth next 30 minutes. Roger that stand by. So I'm standing by and I remember I had my hands up, just chilling out. And that was back when we had two radios and we had the, uh, KY 58s. I think they were, which was the encrypted, uh, oh, you could encrypt it right, and right, talk, right. covered, uh, so that nobody could eavesdrop on you. And we put that on the back radio because you had to click the mic a couple of times to clear it, to talk in the clear and get out of the covered stuff, which would just be a squelching year. Well, I'm fat, dumb and happy waiting for the guy to come back and uh, give you the metro. And just like in the simulator where you'll change, you know, everything winds down, the seals pop on the, uh, on the canopy and, uh, it just flamed up. Hey, Hey, uh, nightmare. What altitude were you guys at? 33,000. Oh shit. Okay. 33,000. And we were just fat, dumb and happy. I remember thinking, well, flame, I don't want to get summit to the coast. Now you're just fat and dumb when it flames out. You're no longer happy. So and you're <laughs> really just a soda machine. And, uh, <laughs> the plane, the plane, I remember talking to chaos about windmilling and you get high pressure and everything. Well, what had happened to me, we found out later is in the accessory gearbox, the make it simple. The gears had unmeshed. The main gear had a bolt that had lost its torque. It unscrewed the gears unmeshed. So both of my hydraulics pumps and the big one, my fuel pump weren't working. So the engine could get no gas, hence the flame. But the windmilling engine didn't give me any hydraulic pressure because the gears were disconnected to the high pumps. So the stick went right. Like when it's sitting on the flight line, it just sat there pretty stick. And of course it doesn't move. The rudder pedals are hydraulically boosted. So I, I still had rudder pedals, but the plane sort of went over in a nosedive and went about 80, 85 degrees nose down and somewhat oh, shit. slightly inverted. And I, I remember thinking to myself, it said, you know what? I'm going to wait till 14,000 feet. When I see 15,000 feet on the standby up altimeter, that's when I'll eject because in the sea, when you eject above 14,000 feet, you don't get seat man separation right away. You get a drogue chute that comes out. You ride the seat down to about 14,000 feet. And then you get the main parachute comes out. You have seat man separation. Well, I remember thinking, I don't want to wait to see if all that's going to work. Oh, shit. So I'll just wait till I get down to 14,000 feet, pull the handle, the worker along. Never crossed my mind at what speed I would be traveling after falling another 15,000 feet. Right. I was going through, as I'm thinking that, I kicked in a bootloader right rudder. And, uh, the plane actually wallowed out of it and, uh, it came up and I'm like, this is cool. I started so it level. It kind of leveled off a little bit. It, it leveled off at about 26, 27,000 feet and it would go up and then I'd run out of airspeed and it would stall again and it would flop down. And then I kicked the other rudder in. So I started sort of falling least it all the way down, trying to keep some airspeed out. Uh, well, I had the radio. And I couldn't talk to a wolf anymore on the radio because the back radio, the KYs kicked in and we were all covered. And on the front radio this time, the poor kid, poor kid who's probably a gentleman of the Air Force, comes back and goes, Hey, Magic, this is McGuire Major. I have your self weapons advisor ready to copy. I key the mic and said, Hey, McGuire, how about this? How about the New Jersey coast in about five minutes? And he paused and he goes, Say again. 
And I told him I'd had a, I'd had a flight out like and meet somebody to come me up. Oh. I don't remember, but I guess I had a cut, uh, a cut from our last tack. And I remembered in my mind, I told him a lap, a, uh, a tack and cut from, I think it was Atlantic City on, uh, on about where I was. And, uh, cause I still couldn't talk to Wolf. I didn't know where Wolf was. I didn't know if he'd go, I'd flamed out because I was behind him and sort of fight a week. Oh shit. So passing, I guess passing 25,000 on the standby below 20 floor, I started trying to do a relight. And, uh, of course it's clickety clack, clickety clack, clickety clack. You can hear the igniters going. Yeah. And you also hear the loudest noise you'll hear is the sound of a dead engine window when you're not on the ground. And it's just like, the, you know, like the flight line. Wind's blowing down the intake and you click, 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 click. Yeah, you can yeah, hear that. All the fan blades are all loose because they're not centrifugally held out. Oh, man. And the, the pressurized cockpit's no longer pressurized. So I'm getting all these shafts, click, nothing's happening. So I'm like, well, this, this is kind of a pain in the neck. Passing 17,000 feet, the APU back then, I think they've modded them later on. Back then, we couldn't turn the APU on until we were below 17,500 feet. Okay. okay. So passing 17, I turned the auxiliary power unit on, which is a little standby generator that keyed everything up. And I was able to clear my frequency that I was talking to my, my lead on Wolf. He and Mike said, Hey, Wolfie nightmare. You got me? He goes, yes. And I've got a flame out. He goes, yeah, I could tell. And, and he's been meanwhile, sort of S turning, trying to stay up because I'm, I'm barely making 225 knots because I keep stalling and then coming up and then stalling the other way. And, uh, I said, I talked to McGuire. They know about it. He goes, yeah, well, I've talked to the coast guard. He, he got on the radio or talked to the coast guard. He got help coming our way. And, uh, he goes, well, why don't you try a relay? And you go, yeah, what do you think I've been doing? And I'm like, you idiot. What do you think I've been trying to do? 10,000 feet. <laughs> Sound like I'm just sitting here. And uh, so I said, yeah, I'm switching to manual fuel now. So I switched to manual fuel. That's a idea. And, uh. So I start trying that and that doesn't work at air, the air start. I said, you know what? Right idea. Why don't I try a strength translational start like we do on the ground? Oh, sure. And that's where you let the APU run and it starts turning the starter. And then when the engine starts spooling enough, you added a little fuel, the engine will kick off and you got to relay. And what a brilliant idea I had. So I do that and the APU winds down and then. The starter starts rotating. Now I'm, I'm looking for something to help. So in my mind, I hear it all going like it's supposed to. And the RPM starts blowing up. So uh, windmill and RPM, I guess was eight to 10%. I'm not sure what it was, but it starts going up. There's 11, there's 12%, there's 13%. I, this is awesome. I give it a little fuel, 14%, 15%. Man, I've got to relight it. I never looked at the JPG. Which is still winding down around 100 going to 98. Yeah. Because yeah. the engine's not hot, but that no. RPM's because the auxiliary power unit is turning the engine and the starter. Right. Not, not actual engine. No far. So it goes up, it gets around 18. I forget what it was, 18, 19, it might be 21%. And then the starter drops off by the I'm like, oh, that's not good. So I tried one more of those and it did the same thing. It, of course, I realized right then what had happened. I guess we're about, six, 5,000 feet at this time. And I realized I'm sort of stuck ejecting because uh, I didn't really want to write it in and told Wolf, Hey, Wolf, let's make a left turn. We had, we're heading toward the coast. I said, Hey, Wolf, I'm going to try to come left here and parallel the coast. I'm going to have to get out of this thing. 
goes, Roger that. So he turned and paralleled the coast. And, uh, and, you, and you're doing this just with rudder, right? Yeah, only rudder. I, I only had the stick is stuck. It's, it's, I'm not moving that because I had yeah. zero hydraulic. Stab is frozen. Ailerons are frozen. All you have is the rudder. Neither the rudder. I might have had a little trim, but I don't remember that okay. ever really helping. Okay. Um, so we get to south. We're passing up 4,500 feet. I'm like, okay, well, I got to get out of this. He goes, Roger that. Good luck. <laughs> One Mississippi, two Mississippi. Hey, Rick, where are you at? You're not going to hit me, are you? And I look back and he's at five. No, I'm clear. I said, okay, good. Really going to get out of this thing there. He goes, okay, there's about 3,800 feet. Okay, are you going? Yeah, I'm really going. Yep, I'm all excited. <laughs> and finally, we get down about, yeah, I didn't know if the seat's going to work. I mean, everything else wasn't working that day. Yeah. And uh, yeah, great. So then, yeah, then I, uh, I guess around 3,000 feet, I kicked him out and said, okay, Wolfie, I'm going to get out of this thing. I'll see you at the club and pull the handle. And it's pretty neat. I always told myself, not that I wanted to, but if you ever check, you ought to keep your eyes open and see what's going on. So I kept my eyes open and you actually get a feel. And in my mind, I'm hearing, but I'm sure I didn't hear anything, but you're feeling each vertebrae compressing from your, <laughs> as the seat's coming in. Right. And the seat's coming up. And then I start out of my peripheral. I start seeing some smoke down around my knees. That's the rocket exhaust. And behind me, I know the word rockets shot out. And the canopy both starts doing this as the seat's pushing me out. And the seat okay. pushes me out. And it's just about one and a half seconds from you pulling the handle until you get in a speed man separation at the speeds I was going. I was below 225 knots. And the shoot ballistic spreader. So as soon as it reaches the end, the ballistic spreader shoots. It basically stops my forward momentum, shoots me. And I swung up and I remember seeing the sun between my legs and looking up and seeing the parachute in the ocean. And then I swung back down. <laughs> All right. And and I'm like, I got the feeling of hanging. So I said, well, I'm not really falling that fast. And that's good. And I pulled up my uh, PRC 90, the Prick 90. And it's on guard. I called up guard and said, Wolf, nightmare. I'm okay. He goes, right to that. Your plane's turning to the beach. And, oh, no. Uh, pull the riser and I look in the plane. Once I left it, that is about a, I don't know, 50, 60 degree cut toward the. Uh, right towards uh, Atlantic City Beach. Barrier Island. Barrier Island's just north of Barnegat Bay. And, uh, it coast, it went low over the beach. There wasn't, it wasn't a, a beach that's easily accessed. So it didn't hurt anybody landed in the, in the marsh there about, I don't know, six, seven feet of water. And so probably didn't, didn't explode, did it? Because it didn't explode. It, uh, the, all, the major damage looking at it was everything from forward of the intake when the cockpit is forward ended up going underneath the plane when it crashed Okay, or crashed the front end bottomed underneath it. So it was a good thing the seat worked. Yeah, right. That would have been good for... Uh, and then I'm, I'm flowing down. I'm on the radio. And, and uh, Wolf says, hey, the the, uh, the coast is of Santahilo. And there's a couple a couple ships north of your position. I said, Roger that. And I had, McGuire had told me that they were getting their stuff. Uh, sorry for going from McGuire Air Force Base. So I said, Roger that. I said, okay, I'm going swimming. I'll talk to you a couple of minutes. Remember, put Prick 90 in my vest here. And I had pulled the, uh, the raft free. It dropped down. And... Strapped in the water, get in the water, pull the raft to me. And the dumb thing I did is, and I should have known better, but I forgot to release my seat pin when I grabbed the raft. So I'm trying to get in the raft with my seat pin on. And then I, uh, which is the top of the metal cover that your life raft sits in. Right. So I had, it's got all your survival gear in it, right? Your chiclets and your knife and yeah. Yep. Yeah. charms. I got charms in mine, not chiclets. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and I did eat those. Uh, 
But uh, I disconnected that, jumped in the raft, and then sat there for it only 20, 30 minutes. And the sailboat that had seen me punch out turned around. And it was an old couple that had wintered in Florida, and they were sailing back home to Cohasset, Massachusetts. Oh, uh-huh. summer yeah. in their sailboat. Well, my hometown is right next door to Cohasset. Yeah. So they saw me, I waved them over. They brought me, and they were shaking. They were an elderly couple, and they were physically shaking. And wow. they're like, hi, Paul, the Coast Guard. I said, I'll do it for you, sir. So I, I talked to them on the, on the, uh, talked to the Coast Guard, and they said they were sending a surfboat out for me. And uh, the, the gentleman was so nice. He said, would you like a shot of whiskey, sir? I said, I better wait till after they take my blood, but feel free to have one yourselves. <laughs> and they had one of the Coast Guard came up alongside. I jumped aboard the cutter and uh, thanked the couple on the sailboat. They brought me back to Barnegat Bay uh, to the Coast Guard station there. And a Dolphin a Coast Guard aircraft helicopter had landed in the softball field. I walked across the field, got the uh, Dolphin. They took me, we flew over, we flew to Lakehurst by way of my crashed plane. So I got a good view of it. Uh, we landed in Lakehurst and Wolf had diverted into Lakehurst because he was going to be low on fuel. Oh, okay. We diverted Lakehurst and it was a Friday and uh, we went and we did all the, uh, I had my, my physical, they did the full physical on me and uh, I really basically uninjured a sore back, sore neck, some uh, burns around my neck from where the miniature detonation board that shatters the plastic, the canopy on the right, right. Uh, had exploded. But really, for what it was, I was pretty scot-free. So after they did that, it was time to time to go to Happy Hour. And uh, wow. we went to Happy We were the biggest thing to hit, hit Lakers since the Hindenburg. It was a big <laughs> night. It was a good so night. So awesome. I'm, I'm a, I'm amazed right now. Uh, it's it, it really sounds like you were conscious. For the entire uh, oh, sequence, was, ejection sequence, I was. I never Just lost because most most people, uh, you know, lose it, lose a lose a couple seconds there. Yeah, Just, I had a lot of time to. I mean, I had basically eight minutes. I think it was a free fall. I think yeah. I still have the record for the longest free fall in a dead harrier. Wow! But, wow! Uh, yeah. So I had a lot of time at the end. I mean, if if the seat doesn't work, at least I get final few seconds. Yeah, see what's right there you go. Without giving any details, I, I know your stature, but you're a pretty big human. I am. I was yeah. I'm six one, six one, two hundred pounds, two hundred eight yeah. pounds. Which is pretty ben, big for ben, uh, now. Yeah, which is pretty, you know, good size for a single. It is, which which if you look into it helped me. Yes. Uh, it helped me because now. the seat is very unstable when it ejects in that mode. In the low low altitude, Close, low air yeah. mode, it's very right. unstable because everything happens so quick. So lighter bodies, it's going to, the seat's going to shift and it's going to, it might twist a little bit, which could lead to problems when the seat, when the, when the parachute opens, because yeah. it has happened. People have uh, had their uh, hangman fracture of the neck and it's yeah. killed them. But yeah. being a heavier body, thank you, pasta. It's not a lot, but it is somewhat more stable as the seat leaves the aircraft and, and the chute opens. So it helped me out. I think that's a great. That's a great story. And, and you're right. Um, you know, just because you have the ability to eject from an airplane, that's that, that could be where the problems start. You know, there's a yeah. lot of things that can go wrong during an ejection. There are. Did, yeah. did, did you, know, you, take you remember, did you see the airplane impact or did you lose sight of it before? I did not see the impact, uh, the aircraft impact. I, I was about 135 degrees offset. Okay. When the plane turned back here, I'm looking over here. But when Wolfie said it's, it's going, it's, turning towards shore, 
I remember taking my riser and pulling around like that and seeing the plane turning. The, the damn thing turned and then it rolled wings level. So right. I'm like, and then I was like, ah, this is possible. I'm done with that. Well, at least you had it trimmed up nice. I mean, that, that shows that you have excellent pilot skills. That's right. Yeah. You were trimmed. That's what I'd say, but there's a lot of people that disagree with that. <laughs> Too funny. Uh, Hey, uh, how far off the coast were you when you pulled the handle? Was it, would you say- I was probably miles about five miles, miles offshore when I landed in the water. Probably oh about God, 20 to 25 when I flamed down. So from 3,000 feet, that plane had enough uh, yeah. you know, glide in it to make it to the beat. That's, yeah. that's well, impressive. You know what? Maybe it might have been less than five and I just blew five miles out because the coast just told me that they picked me up five miles offshore. Okay. So- and then uh, right. one of the terms you used in there was the word motor. And that, as I recall, is the wind-oriented rocket device. Is that something like that? It, to, to help align the seat into the wind. Yeah. So and when it, your chute it, deploys, it, it, you it aren't going it into it. It out and tries to align everything. So when the parachute opens, it's aligned with everything's aligned. Right. Your body isn't going into the opening chute. And you talked about the uh, the spreader, which is just like, spreader. for lack of a better word, it's like a little shotgun charge that with these lead uh balls in there that pull the drogue chute open so that it uh or actually it's the main we chute actually, right pull the main chute open. main chute so because it spreads it, it open so in a low altitude right. environment you get you get the chute deploying much faster because you may need it from 50 feet or well, zero. most most ejection seat or a lot of ejection seats once without spreading up rely on momentum movement right 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 so with a zero 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 forward momentum zero airspeed zero altitude something other than the air needs to help open that that parachute so it can grab the air right otherwise you end up with a streamer right yeah that's a pretty impressive seat it's a stencil seat as i recall is that it was stencil yep and it's stencil and then i think they co-bought it hey did they give you a did stencil give you like a watch or something or you know for no, riding the seat? I, I, got, I got a little grasshopper with a ruby eye because you become you become a member of the grasshopper club and then uh, stencil gave me, they gave me a tie clap, tie pin that was an, a, another tie pin. But okay. I think the grasshopper clubs or club came about in the old days when parachutes were made of silk. And I don't know so why it's a grasshopper, but I don't think grasshoppers make silk. I think it's caterpillars. Yeah. Caterpillars <laughs> turn into a grasshopper. I don't blame them. So yeah. I got a little grasshopper with a ruby in it. Well, caterpillar clips uh, aren't as sexy as grasshoppers. <laughs> well, and then the other one, we had a guy talk about his ejection, and he was really pissed because he realized at the last minute that he let go of the ejection seat handle. He's like, oh, damn it. Did you it, keep it your It to matter because it doesn't detach. It doesn't detach uh, on, on that the seat. On the stencil okay. seat, it, it stays attached. Stays on the you seat. can pull okay. it. It's got about, I don't know, three, four inches of movement in it, yep. but it remains attached to the seat. So if he had held on, he would have fallen a lot quicker. <laughs> On the rate. Uh, so today, today, do you have feel uh, that ejection in your back, in your neck, yes. anywhere? Or, yeah. yeah. Especially bet. when the weather changes. Yeah. That's right. something. Because that's a violent, that's a pretty violent event. That's awesome, it's though, like that you were in the club that it, it all worked out well. And you are drinking in and, the club. You know, a thing that would never happen today, that was Friday. Saturday, the uh, Cherry Point used to have the old Saber Liners as their uh, right, right, the T thirty nine. So yes, planes. So they flew the mishap investigation team from Cherry Point up to Lakehurst on the Saber Liner, 
And I jumped on it, flew back to Cherry Point. This is Saturday. Monday morning, I go to work and the CO pulls me in his office and has a one-to-one with me. He, Vietnam era, F4 guy, A4s from early, early on. You know, he says, I've never rejected. I don't know what you're going through. I said, I have no idea what you're going through. I've seen buddies eject and they say it's better to get back on the horse. Okay, sir. He goes, when are you ready to fly? And I kind of was like, actually, right now, sir. He goes, okay, good. Flight surge is going to get you clearance. Go to flight equipment, get some new gear, and we'll take off at one this afternoon and go up and pick Wolfsaw. So I punched out Friday at about 105. Monday, right after lunch, I'm on the CO's wing, taking off, flying up to Lakehurst to pick Wolf up, and we flew back as a three ship. I'm not sure that would ever happen today with all the six months of grounding for a missile. That's awesome, right? That's pretty yeah, no that's kid. Pretty, yeah, that, that's, that's awesome. And I will man. tell you, you, you guys see the movie Airplane? Right. Yeah. Where the guy's ripping sweat when he's landing, trying to land the plane. That was me taking off that Monday afternoon. <laughs> I looked for any excuse to down that. Uh, the brakes aren't frozen. The hydraulic line isn't broken. So, so mad at all the maintenance guys. It was a perfect jet. Well, you know, it's uh, funny how things work. It's, it's nice that that gear held until you're at 30,000 feet. Not yeah. when you were at, uh, you know, 35 feet. On the takeoff roll. That's true. That would have been true. more exciting. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah, a lot more exciting. So then you find yourself continuing in the gun squadron. Uh, no border or anything like that. So that's awesome. Of course, they had the airplane to look at and go, yeah, it's totally. They they actually found out. They uh, they used an old sky hook to pick up the bird at. Okay. Uh, put in a flatbed. I forget exactly where they brought it to. Maybe Lakers or whatnot. But they took the wing off. And for what I had told them in the debriefing, they took the wing off, took the top of the accessory gearbox off and found the bolt and the, the washer and the bolt and everything disconnected. So they knew exactly what had happened. And then they had to go through the process of, okay, why did that bolt unwind? Yada, yada. And right. go down that. And they did, did. do you know, it, did they ever fix that? Do you know, did they put a uh, safety wire in that bolt? What had happened was when the accessory gearbox was reworked. The washer had a little excess metal on it okay. from the manufacturing, and it wasn't sanded or grinded or whatever off. So when they put the bolt in, they torqued the bolt down to the proper torque, but it was against a washer that had excess material, and that excess material wore off, and therefore the torque was no longer valid, and the bolt backed itself out. Long. Yeah. yeah. It, it always fascinates so they me. On the gearbox and, they, and they found a couple others that were bad. Yeah. It, having gone to safety school, it always fascinates me the things that the engineers can find that, uh, you know, things like that. Oh, my God, that, you know, the, the bolt was improperly torqued after the, the witness marks left enough of the metal on that face of that, uh, the bottom face of that bolt going, yeah, clearly there was some metal here that's now gone and yep. microscopic evidence that's left behind. And they're able to determine what happened from that is astounding. It's a similar one is when we lost our buddy Biscuit over in Spain in 92, I think it was. 91. Uh, it was, was it 91? Yeah, it was November 91. Uh, yeah. They found witness marks on the knuckle of the of the aileron. Uh, actuator. Actually, yeah. Right? The, the, the push rod the in, actuator. The, in the wing. Yeah. Yes. And, and uh, but microscopic witness marks from, from how it had been installed backwards. Fascinating. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, you know, post, post-mortem isn't quite the right word, but uh, 
anyway, I, I've wandered down right, a rabbit so hole. So you, you, uh, you uh, had a, a brief exit from 331 and then uh, uh, back to 331 because of uh, the impending Gulf War One. WW3 Desert One. Yeah. <laughs> right. So uh, it's in, you were, uh, 331 was aboard the Nassau? We were on the Nassau. USS Nausea. <laughs> we, uh, I, I got a couple of landings on that boat, but that was well, after that event. Obviously. <laughs> so, uh, tell, tell us, uh, any memorable, um, boat, um, boat stories we, from that. I mean, you're, you're, you're stuck in the boat with 5,000 other guys. It's not that much fun, <laughs> but, uh, we, we had, we had some good times. We had, that was of course the Harrier carrier. We had 20 Harriers and a handful of old age tangos and a few Hueys. And so we called it the uh, Harrier Carrier with Embark Caesar. Nice. Uh, we did, I guess, we did a lot of flying. We did a lot of low altitude flying because that was back when low altitude is going to, it's how we're going right. to fight. We're going to beat the Soviets in the fold gap, do it flying low. And I mean, when Desert Storm kicked off, found, everybody found out that, you know, what in the first 24 hours, low is not good, high is very good. But, uh, but flying low is fun. And uh, we flew over a lot of the Oman desert, you know, and chased some camels around. Did some dog fighting with the Jags, nice. British uh, Jags. We had some good times. Okay. Here's one story I know that happened, uh, there, and I'm sure there's other stories on the boat, but one of my favorites is Thanksgiving. Happened in Thanksgiving of 1990. Yes, and she did give me a hug. Well, let's hear it. That was back. We were out. We had just pulled into... Abu Dhabi, I believe it is. Abu Dhabi. Okay. No liberty. No liberty allowed. We're like, why the heck not? Well, President Schwarzkopf are coming aboard. So what? No, they don't need us. And, don't uh, care. So, we're going drinking. <laughs> it's funny. The day before, that's when they issued us all our uh, desert camis. Because we had all embarked. We only had green. And then right. the president's coming aboard. Let's give everybody all the reefs their desert camis. So we put on the desert camis. President came on. And, of course, he's a native aviator. So... I would show him around and Tiny and Psycho got to show him the cockpit of the Harrier. He gave a speech, gave a talk and Schwarzkopf gave a talk and everything. And then they had about around the tram line roped off. So we could all stand there and say, hi, Mr. President. As they're walking by, poor Mrs. Bush. She had been going from LZ to LZ to LZ all day long, saying hello to all the troops all over Kuwait all, or all over Saudi Arabia as well. Just, it's dusty. It's hot. She probably wasn't that happy to be there, but you wouldn't know it from her attitude. So she's walking by and she had secret service around it. And she had a female secret service on the far side of her. And she's walking by and said, it's just Bush. You're the prettiest thing I've seen for months. And she gets, oh, you are so nice. And she runs over and she gives me a hug. And I'm hugging her. And I'm looking over her shoulder. And the female secret service is there just glaring at me like, oh, dude. Yeah. Those hands move. You're getting shot between the ice. Right. <laughs> but it was nice of him to come out. Oh, buddy. And then, I don't know if it was next year, then General Kelly came out. Now, it was probably a month later. General Kelly came out. He was the commandant. Yep. He came out to give all the Marines a big speech, motivating speech and all. And uh, he gave it to us. And the flank deck is just packed with Marines. And he's up on sort of a stage. He gets done. He goes, do I have any questions, Marines? And some poor Lance Corporal Private, probably first time he's ever deployed, raised. And I go, 
Yes, hard charger. He goes, sir, do you have any idea on when we may go home? Because we had deployed with five days notice, four days notice, and we deployed in middle of August. And this yeah. is now early December, I think. Right. And, <laughs> you know, Greg grabs a mic and goes, let me tell you, Marine, something. God may own your soul, but I own you. You'll stay here till I say you can go home. Any more oh, questions? <laughs> there were no more Oh, what? man. No. Good old Al Some Gray. dumb questions. Skip that. <laughs> so that was Al, that was Al Gray, not P.X. Was, Kelly. That was Al No, Gray. not P.X. Kelly. That was Al Gray. Yeah. Yes, yes. Okay. Yeah. That's, uh, Kelly would have said it differently. The, yeah, the, the sledgehammer. Well, when combat operations started, I must imagine you got, it was probably equally spread um, amongst the guys. Uh, it was equally spread. We didn't, we didn't fly that much combat. We flew mostly the last uh, seven, ten days or so. We were held back for the ground war. They wanted to keep the Harriers under Marine Corps control and not give them to the Air Force, Chaos, the uh, yep. combined fleet. Uh, so Combine they, Air uh, Operations sort of, Center. They kept us Hudson, and then they uh, then let us go free a little bit toward the end. The very first combat mission, we flew in divisions, flights of four. Oscar was the uh, division lead, and I was the second section, and I had Jimbo on my one. We go up, we hit our target area, and we're flying back, and you're coming back once you're in you know, feet wet, let's do our battle check. So we'll check each other over, make sure nobody got any holes or any stuff that wasn't there when you took off. And uh, so Jimbo and I check each other out, give each other thumbs up. And we watch Oscar's women going around, looking him over. And then he pauses and he goes, Oscar, you're not going to believe this. Well, you've got a bullet hole in your vertical stand. So he's probably, and Oscar's like, what? You have a bullet hole in your vertical stand. He goes, you're kidding. Well, we've been flying on the boat for months and we did everything zip lip where we didn't have do any radio calls. We, we started on the yellow shirt signal. We launched on the yellow shirt signal. We came, we hit the initial three minutes prior to our Charlie time. So we landed on, we did zip lip ops. Well, we also had our Bubba net. So on the back radio, on the second radio, you could talk to each other in the flight and nobody else could hear. So you'd, you know, go Magnum. So everyone would switch 357.0, go Bumblebee. You'd switch to 331.0. Well, I don't know what frequency it was, but we were on this frequency and some trader in the squadron had told friend on the boat. So everybody around the boat is listening to our tap freaks just going through the story. So they're hearing us. Yeah. What they also heard was you've got a bullet hole in your vertical staff. So this boat's been doing nothing for the entire war. And now they hear, we got battle damage coming back to the boat. All right. So the docks, they fire up all the docks. The crash, fire, rescue, all get their silver seats on. They're, here we go. We're going to save this. They're going to be shooting these films of us saving this guy, just like the old World War II film. So Oscar's like, what do you mean I have a bullet hole? He goes, right about in the middle of your vertical stand. And then it hits Oscar and he goes, does it have a black marking paint, sort of like a question mark around it? Yes. That's the hole they put the pit in to lift the vertical stave up for maintenance. <laughs> it's just a hole that they put a pit in so that yeah. they can lift the vertical step. Yeah. Everyone has it. <laughs> maintenance zone. So Oscar took off with that hole. Yeah. So we're like, oh, my bad. No problem. 
Well, the boat doesn't hear that because they're all there running to, to save us. Of course, course they are. <laughs> and it never hit anybody on the boat that we come into the break. So we're at the initial 1,200 feet, drop it down to eight, four ship with a battle damage flight lead. He takes the break first, runs in and lands. And there's a full rush to his plane on the flight deck. And it's like, hey, guys, clear the flight deck of the air bonds. Like, clear the flight deck. We got three others to land because we had 406 engines, yep. which were the older engine. It didn't put out as much thrust as the new ones. Yeah. And we were carrying either a Deccan pod, which weighed about 800 pounds, or a gun pack, which weighed about seven, 800 pounds. So we didn't have a lot of excess. Our states, set states were pretty low sometimes. Uh, we've had, I've, we did missions with set state of 800 pounds. So wow. you didn't have yeah, a whole yeah. lot of waste time. Well, they got the flight cleared. We all come into land. And I think that was the last time the CO let us have our own tactical net frequency, at least one that was shared with anybody else. Oh, that's we never awesome. got any value. That is yeah. awesome. Every one of them has the same hole. Yeah. And everyone does. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, hey, uh, what type of pre-flight do you do? Yeah. How many combat missions did you get? Teens, somewhere in the I-teens. Yeah. Okay. But you went on to a full career. So did you get any, or were you, were you done flying, uh, by the time 203, 2003, 2004 rolling around? around uh, 2005, second? I gave up command of 203. Okay. And uh, I went over for a ground job on Okinawa and I didn't fly when I was on the rock for four years. Then when I came back to second Ma again, I, I got some flights with 203. And then I, I also flew with the other squadrons in the wing. Oh, nice. Okay. Let me jump in the cockpit with them. The do pilot and planes. Okay. So I got to ride flying all the uh, platforms that we had at that time, except the Osprey. I don't have any Osprey time. Hey, Nightmare, how many, how many total hours uh, did you record? Total somewhere over 3,000, maybe 2,500. That's impressive. That is impressive. Not a lot of guys with 2,000 plus in the Harrier. Anyone with over 2,000 in the Harrier, that, that's an accomplishment. Because you did that 45 minutes at a time, an hour yeah. at a time, with, with the rare exception of going from Wake Island to Iwakuni or something like that. But right. That's a know. lot of strapping in and unstrapping. Uh, no, no, it no is. way around that. It is. So if you went from two Oh three, you went up to Airland. I did. The best question I have at this point is what was your favorite job in the entire career from second Lieutenant to Colonel? CO be the, be the command officer two Oh three. But I had, I, I had great jobs. I'd never, in my entire career, I never had anybody that I would consider a subpar or not a great CO. My commanding officers and the commanding generals I ended up working for were always great to work for. Some of them very hard to work for, but always rewarding and great to work for. Even when I worked at Airland, I worked for a Navy captain and the Navy uh, lieutenant command, uh, Navy commander. I was a major. Mm. They were great guys, uh, very professional fun to work with, even though you're stuck in the staff door. I wouldn't see attack class desk up there. And I was in charge of the East Coast Harriers maintenance of material. And when Nav Air actually comes up with a change to the Harrier, I helped them implement it on the East Coast Harriers. But as the attack class desk, this was 96, they gave me Harriers, EA-6Bs, there was a Navy A-3s, Navy TA force in the VC squadrons, and they gave you all things pioneer that was relatively new at the time and the UAV, the early UAV. So I had to learn a lot of different 
aircraft from the desk without ever getting the opportunity to fly in. Yeah. But it was fun. The, the people that I worked there were great. And it was, a, it was a completely different era, different time, even though it was post tailhook, but it was the Airland building is an old building, probably of forties or fifties. Okay. And it's got the big front building and three wings out the back. We were on one end wing. So the long wing, the offices on each side and long hallway used to buff out. So it's tiled. And at the end of the hallway was the repo room. That was the reproduction room with the, uh, Xerox machine. And just to the left of that was the entranceway to the captain's, the Navy captain's office. And one day, one of the civilians working there, we'll call him Bill. He said, these are just good old Vietnam era guys. Good old ones. He comes out and he sits a chair up at the end and the middle of the hall. And he takes his fishing line and he proceeds to tie an ear of corn to the fishing line. And so it was, it's like shifting. I said, Bill, what are you doing? And he throws the ear of corn, casts the ear of corn down the hallway and goes sliding down the hallway into the repo room. And he starts reeling it in. He goes, I'm hog fishing. And we're like, what the hell? And right then, one of the ladies that worked in the captain's office sticks her head and looks down the hallway because she sees it. And he goes, I'm getting a nibble. <laughs> I mean, can you imagine that sort of stuff going on today? I, I, oh dear God, no! But it was they. We had a Christmas party every year. We were there three years, and we had a Christmas. Uh, it's called a walk around Christmas party. And at noon, every office would have a different drink. So you could go have rum toddies in one room. You go up the operations guys. They'd have whatever. Well, the Marines. I think there were like seventeen of us that worked in the building, and there was three hundred in the building. We would get to work normally earlier. For me, I, I live south of Norfolk and then to drive to the base through Norfolk. So I got there early to beat the traffic. But we'd all get our work done by 7.30 when the sailors would show up because this was a short duty for them. So it was like their time on. Well, it's a Christmas party day. So I figured, you know, Bailey's goes good. So I'd come in at 5.30, 6 o'clock and all the Marines are having Bailey's in their coffee. We're giving it to our contractors. The word gets out. We had relations with the, uh, the F-14 guys up in the office. They'd come down to get some Irish cream and we'd building gets the word that there's Irish cream down there and it's only 10 o'clock in the morning. Thank God we had a great three-star Admiral too. About 11 o'clock, the Admiral who used to do wander around, just say, hi to you. He comes down and sits on my desk right up next to me with his cup of coffee. Got a nightmare. Yes, Admiral. I hear. No, he said, it's not new yet, is it? And no, sir. I hear we have Irish cream around here. I Where'd you hear that, sir? And he goes, I have my sources. I go, yes, sir. And he goes, well, well, major. I said, oh, yes, sir. And I opened up my cabinet. There's like seven bottles of bailings. I knew I wasn't in trouble that day. And then, of course, next year, everybody heard about it. So I had to buy a whole bunch of the real cheap Irish cream. I think I had like 15 bottles because I ended up having to serve the entire building. Yeah, you give that to the riffraff and you yeah, save yeah, the stuff. Yeah, we got the Bailey's right. and the Marines. Right on. <laughs> and the Admiral. Yeah, you can't serve the cheap stuff to the Admiral. You rate your fitness report, right? <laughs> yeah. I didn't have a bad, bad job. XO, I was XO 542 for Satchmo. XO is never fun because. Yeah. Well, you're the uh, hammer. Yeah, you're always. You're the heavy. You're always the mean you're the guy. Always, which probably worked out for me. I, you, you never get the goods. It's like chief of staff. That was a very rewarding, very fun job, primarily because I worked with great general officers. 
but no one ever calls the chief of staff to say, hey, chief, things are going great. I hope you have a good weekend. <laughs> Normally, the calls at one in the morning are like, hey, chief, I got I to gotta run this by you. And uh, so you remember when we used to get in the mail, the government would send you a letter as that your active duty says, your job is a Harrier pilot. Were you in the civilian world, you would be an airline pilot. You would have these benefits. But look at yeah. all the wonderful benefits you're getting being in the Marine Corps. And they did yeah. that from all of the different military occupation specialties. So, but when you're chief of staff, you get one of those letters too. They say, you're chief of staff, you do this. If you were in the civilian world, your job equates to the guy with the shovel and the wheelbarrow following the elephants down Main Street for the circus, just yeah. shoveling up half. That's <laughs> what a chief of staff is. A great big filter right. for the boss. Oh. Well, that was it. That was an awesome career uh, nightmare. It was a fun one. It was, it was rewarding. I mean, look at me. I can't get a real job outside of you. So might as well stay in for 30. There you go. Exactly. What are you doing now? I work at the uh, Mid-Atlantic Electronic Warfare Range, simulating threats, uh, simulating SAM threats, and uh, surface-surface threats for Fleet Naval Forces and uh, other other squadrons and units. So we pretend we're the the bad guys. Nice. No, you are. You are the bad guys. It's okay. You're the bad guy. <laughs> I've been told that. He's an actual right nightmare. Right <laughs> yeah. He is a nightmare. What was the best part of being the CO at 203? I mean, that's kind of cool. You're, you're, you're the king. It's good to be yeah, the king. You're, you're the king. And 203, most Harrier pilots after their first or second tour, they, they've done a couple pumps over. So, you know, they're ready for a little bit of home time and they want to come to 203 and instruct. Right. And normally they have the qualification. All. So as a CO at 203, you get to sort of somewhat to an extent, pick and choose who you want to instruct for you. That's nice. So I ended up with a, a really good crowd of guys that I never had to worry about. They knew what to do. They knew how to do it right most of the time. And uh, I did think I was going to get relieved my first July. I took over in March and we had a, uh, a student go out in the air-to-air sortie and airplane departed. He had to eject. Uh, so he ejects, gets picked up by Pedro, the Sargilo, and gets taken home. Within a week, on a Wednesday, there was a debt in Yuma doing an uh, air-to-ground bombing debt from the squadron, and they had a canopy implode on him at 23,000 feet or one minute. So they lost the canopy, fought the engine, the guys make it back to Yuma, landed safely. Good job. Uh, but that's a class problem. So now we've got a class A, which is the big, very bad mishap. We got a class B, which is the next best thing to a really bad mishap. And then I get a call saying, hey, morning. And it's one of my instructors. Hey, Skipper, just wanted to make sure that you knew about the canopy that we lost. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I, I know about that. I already briefed the boss. We're, we're good to go. Okay. Just want to make sure, Skipper. Thanks. Fine. Five minutes later, I get the call back from the same guy. Hey, Skipper. Yeah. Just wanted to make sure you knew about the canopy we lost this morning out at Seymour Johnson. Like a lot old. Another class problem. I had to run up the chain. None of them. I mean, the canopies, you guys know the canopies. We were having some issues with some of the canopies. Uh, failing Coming open? At that this, did it slide open? They don't, don't open the canopy, the plexiglass shattered. Okay. Uh, one at Seymour Johnson, it might have opened. I'm not sure. I mean, I had one that opened with the, with the general, and we were airborne at the time. Fun. But, uh, Fun times. Uh, yeah. What years, what years were you the skipper at? Uh, I was March of 03 to March of 05. Okay. Here's one. I don't know if you can shed any additional information on this. This is always one of my favorite stories for uh, the, the, the wives network, as it were. 
but I'm 99.9% sure you were airborne with a student at 203, and I was sitting on the desk, and for whatever reason, I don't know, that day that uh, Easy jumped out up by Raleigh. Do you remember that? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You get, uh, was that a bird strike? Was that a yes. bird strike? In yes. Yeah. Yes. So yeah. my, my recollection of that was you call, I've got the desk and I go, okay. And I call down to two thirty one and go, Hey, uh, you guys lost a jet, you know, more information to follow standby. And then you call back and say, okay, Pedro's talking to him. All right. I call back down. Pedro's talking to him. He, you know, so he's alive. Yada, yada, yada. And about, uh, what, I don't think you were privy to this, but three or four minutes later, the phone rings and it's, it's my wife. And she goes, who's Shank 03? I go, what? I'm looking at the phone. So uh, one, why do you want to know? And two, how the hell do you know? And she goes, well, I, I just want to make sure it isn't Pete. who's was another friend of ours, uh, Bummer. I don't know if you remember Bummer or not, but uh, she wanted to make sure it wasn't Bummer. I go, yeah, it's not him. You know, go away. So, and I talked to her later that night and found out. Demo's wife was a tower controller in Kinston and heard all this go down on guard oh, really? and called my wife and said, <laughs> Hey, find out who Shanko three is. So literally my wife and the wife I mean, network knew before the squadron CO, not only that they'd lost an airplane, but who it was. Oh <laughs> yeah. Wow. The Watson has pretty, I, you know, was when, when I had that essay where, uh, the student jumped out of it. His flatly, the instructor said, Hey, no shoot. It just went in the water. There's no shoot. This is off of Cape Lookout. And uh, so we're like, Great. So Pedro went out to uh, try to find the body and they gave me the cackle letter in the ready room. So I opened a sign. The cackle letter is a casualty letter that every pilot writes and they keep it in the CO's safe. So if somebody has a mishap and doesn't make it out, the person is telling the CO who he wants to notify his family as next to kin any specific things you want and stuff. And I read it. I'm on the couch and a couple of the, uh, the guys asked, Skipper, you, you're going to go get the wife and tell the wife? I said, not yet. And they go, why not? I said, let's just give it a little time. And then Pedro came back and said, hey, we found him. And they ended up picking him up. We found him and he's fine. I'm like outstanding. So Pedro radioed the tower. Tower called the ready room said, we got your pilot. He's okay, uninjured, and uh, we're bringing him home. No patience. Sir, you're going to go tell the wife? I said, no. They go, why not? I said, what's the first thing a wife is going to ask me? What do you mean? She's going to ask, how do you know he's okay? You just heard that. She said, so I'm going to wait till Pedro lands. I'm going to meet him on the bird. I'm going to say, I welcome home. And then I'm going to go tell his wife. So good plan. Pedro land. I go on. Glad you're okay. Blah, blah, blah. We're going to take you over to the hospital. And give you your, your uh, medical law. So I drive off base in the handlock to a church where the wife is uh, uh, volunteering or doing a, a function with, with a church. And I'm in my flight suit. And I never left the basement with my flight suit, but I wanted to get to her as quick as possible. And uh, so I get in the parking lot. I think if I walk in there, she knows who I am. And she's going to immediately think the worst thing. Oh, absolutely. So <laughs> I grabbed two, two Marines, obviously, and said he's walking out. I pull him over saying, listen. And I tell him the story. I said, do you know this thing? Oh, yeah, we know her. I said, will you go tell her that everything's fine? And then I'll come in and talk to her. They go, yes, sir. So they did that right on them. And she's fine. So I brought her out and I said, do you want me to drive her to the hospital? That's where he is. He's fine. I've talked to him. And uh, she goes, no, I'll, I'll drive over with my girlfriend. So they drive over with the girlfriends and the wives net is out, especially among the students. Yeah. So the hospital is like 10 wives, including the colonel, the deep CO's wife there. 
who a wives club was trying. Oh, you bet. So I go there. Hi, how are you? Whatever. And I stand over and there's about 10 instructors. And I don't know why we all ended up there, but we all ended up there just to welcome them back, I guess. And we're talking about all the other mishaps we've had. Because my ex, so he had ejected out of a T2. It was pretty broken. Broken neck, broken femur. He was, oh. he was badly broken up. The, uh, the hunting, the son of the hunter that found him hanging in the pretty looked up, turned away and threw up because he was in bad shape, but he's fine. And he's like the Harrier again. And so we're telling all the stories about, oh, I remember when such and such punched out. Oh yeah. This man. And all we hear is sobs in the, on the other side of the room. And we're like, what the heck? Everything's fine. And then the group CEO comes home and goes, a nightmare. Yes, sir. Could you keep it down? You're really upsetting the wives. I'm like, oh, <laughs> sorry. Didn't think. <laughs> Uh, the lines, talking about all the ejections when one of the but it's like it's fine when you're fine it's good exactly oh yeah that's i can i'm i was there for a second i could totally see that going yeah. down yeah yeah open mouth insert foot shoot to knee right what a great career that has been uh, uh so much fun talking with you nightmare we appreciate you coming on with us. Your hey and uh, thank you for your service thank indeed. you for your service yeah, yours too thank you indeed it was great to see you last year at the reunion i think uh hope, hopefully you can do the next one i think curly's in charge of that we're gonna plan on it you have to bring your daughter to it she's a pilot now right she is she's working on her commercial you'll have to bring her to the next one so uh gotta bring it trying to talk her to go at least into the air guard somewhere where she can you know fly cool airplanes and do cool mm -hmm. stuff, so and have stories to come on here and tell you about. Uh, right? right, exactly. No, I'm not sure I want her to. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> I'm with you, brother. <laughs> exactly. So, and my youngest one wants to fly too. So, um, if you have a quarter million dollars, I can borrow. Uh, and by borrow, I mean have and not give back. You, uh, you just send that my way, and I'll get. If I my ever kids... come up with it, I'll let you know. <laughs> yeah, I'll get my kids up to speed. So you anyway, well. Uh, so thank you for your service indeed. Thank you for the time you spent with us. I also want to thank Dave Hamilton over at the Mac Geek Gab who has helped us put this whole thing together. We are having a ball. The show is growing. Everybody's sharing. Thank you for sharing. Down to 13 more people, I think. I, uh, last look, 13 more people to join and follow oh, us on so Rumble close. so that we get to 100 and we don't have to pay in order to bring this to you in a live stream with all its warts during the show. So you, this is all raw. It stays up on Rumble. You hear all the goofs and the guffaws and then mic bangs. And I forgot to start recording on another show. Everything <laughs> else. All, all the stupidity. But then you get this fine product that you're listening to now if you're listening on a podcast. I go back through and edit that. But if you'd follow us on Rumble, that would be great. Also, please don't forget to go over to robinsbirdbraindesigns.com. If you need a customized gift for anybody, coasters, something along those lines that are etched with your call sign and your squadron logo or an airplane instrument and your tail number. If you want your iPad etched or your laptop etched, she can do all that kind of stuff. Reach out to robinsbirdbraindesigns.com, talk to her, figure out, and it shows you've put a lot of thought and effort into getting a nice gift for somebody. Let's see, what else? Uh, follow us on Rumble, so there I was dot US slash Rumble. Follow us on Facebook, so there I was dot US slash Facebook. So there was that US slash Twitter for the Twitter feed. Email feedback to us at fig at so there I was dot US or repeat at so there I was dot US. And these fine folks that you are hearing now in the background, the Dos Gringos. Yeah, they make the Air Force, they make the Air Force look good. Great it's band. Good. Great band. <laughs> 
I think I have every one of their songs on their albums. Yeah. Right? Yeah, they are it, fun to it, listen it, to. They're timeless. They never get old. No, it's good stuff. Let's see. What else have I forgotten, Fig? I know I've forgotten something. Oh, Glossary, our website. We've got a glossary on the website. So if you've heard a term that you don't understand, go look on the website. You may have heard it. It may be written down there. If it's not, then shoot us an email and tell us, hey, get that on there so we can figure out what on earth you're talking about. Because we know we do hit a lot of acronyms here, and we try to cover them, but we don't get them all. I got nothing else, Fig. Any, what else? Thanks for listening, and check six. <laughs> what, exactly. what do you think? Exactly. No, I, I, I think you're exactly right. Thanks for listening to the show. Till next week, stay safe and check six. Crossing the pond And you could see that I wasn't exactly fond Of all the shit I was wearing On that day Now an F-16 is cramped enough But it's even worse With all that stuff Supposed to save your life But we knew there was no way Cause when you're going down The North Atlantic, man, it's over It's over When this is over, I'm hitting the sauce.